Clear. background noise throughout the day but it's just airplanes so it's not it's, it's not really noise. good background noise yeah right. this is this is the best seat in the house that's right we got sky riders now we got sky riders, we got sky riders now. now does that say you cap i can't it's got a runway in the front yard <laughs> and you're in sight clear left turkey national ground good afternoon sir taxi via foxtrot and delta And I had thought we'd started, but I guess not. Uh, well, no, you can bleep that out. I'm Just gonna, I'll order that out. All right, that's what I'll do. Anyways, my drone, my my drone. I keep wanting to call it a droid. My my drone helicopter thing hasn't returned yet, so I haven't had a chance to play with it yet. But now you're like teasing us here with some sort of story about a 400 mile an hour RC airplane. What's this all about? I don't about? know if it's 400 miles per hour. Um, a little sucker clearly will move. Uh huh. Can it? clearly is very maneuverable. So I'm looking at this, uh, I've got the video freeze-framed because I don't want to kill my bandwidth here. Well, but, uh, the problem with the video is it's mainly handheld video and the the, the, lens, the cameraman needed to kind of be in a different place or the pilot needed to fly the airplane a little bit differently to get good good photos of it, good images of uh-huh. it. But well, I mean, the, yeah. the, the hand, little handheld camera cannot keep up with right. it at all. It's just, it's forget about it. Now, the frame that I'm frozen on here shows um, a, what appears to be an adult and a kid uh, admiring uh, an aircraft uh, on the ground that sort of looks like a, you know, kind of Delta Wing, you know, uh-huh. SR-70. Yeah, that's, that's the opening shot. It looks like a, um, yeah, right. uh, it looks like an SR-71 with a Delta Wing. That's right. a good description. The, 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 the twin twin stabilizers cannon inward. Exactly. Now, what's the nature of that power plant there? Is that a, a propeller of some sort, or is that a... Well, no, no that's, that's a, a turbine. That's a, that's a small turbine. That's what I was asking about. So this was yeah. one of these these little mini... mini. Tur- yeah, okay, that's cool. And uh, What I don't get is, is um, looking at the opening shot where he's got this this engine mounted and then he's got some wiring stuck into the top of it it's not spark plugs but it might be you know control box or igniter power or something like that yeah and i don't see him like disconnect those wires or or uh, um, um put them anywhere else in, in the open credits and this thing's flying this thing is fast i don't yeah. know if it's 400 miles an hour it is fast and I don't see how those wires survive or, or don't beat the crap out of the airplane uh, at, at that speed. So I don't know what's going on with those wires. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Yeah. I guess, you know, you've got to be really good at this RC control stuff to, to, uh, to fly a fast airplane like this. I'd probably fly it into the ground, you know, within minutes of... Uh, I, I wouldn't even be able to get it started. Yeah. Every single time I've flown my helicopter so far, I've smashed it into a wall. It's really good that it's, that it's so durable. All right, I was, you know, I never got around. By the way, and I had mentioned that I was going to take it down into the huge exhibit hall, the one that's like the size of many, many hangars. All right, and uh, I was going to fly it in there, and I never got around to doing that. Um, and I'm kind of glad I didn't because the more I think about it, if Every time I've ever flown it in a large space, it's kind of gone off in a direction on its own, and the only thing that stopped it was it smashed into a wall, all right, and it kind of fell to the ground. And I'm thinking in the big monster hangar, it could just keep going forever, and I'd lose it. I don't know. So I'm a little worried about flying it in my yard, but we'll see. 400 miles an hour. So I thought that this video, when, when you said in the note, you said 400 mile an hour RC, 
There's also uh-huh. some videos floating around about these um, sort of ridge-soaring glider RCs uh-huh. Uh-huh. that uh, um, they generate some real speed. Uh, uh, David, are you familiar with, have you seen these videos? That these? Uh, yeah, I've seen those. And I used to see some guys out uh, on the cliffs near our house in, uh, in California. There was a great soaring site all set up. It was a city park. Uh, and... Uh, these guys came out with these very small wing, high wing loading uh, uh, gliders that were built to look like P-51s and, and Spitfires and all these. And these puppies screamed. Yeah. yeah. Of course, we'd get these really good winds there coming off the Pacific uh, so that, you know, they, they could get up pretty high and die pretty fast. And they could do all kinds of uh, aerobatic maneuvers. Looked like they were going like a bat out of hell. Yeah, yeah. Really fast, yeah. really, really, you know, zooming around. So, anyways, well, I, I have to tell you, I'm kind of fascinated about these RC airplanes that have these little turbines. That's kind of yeah, interesting cool. technology. I don't know if it has any application at all. I mean, I don't think the little ones have any application to, you know, like GA airplanes. But it kind you of get enough of them. <laughs> yeah. There, there, there <laughs> oh, are guys suppose, out yeah. there flying uh, large scale model airplanes that are uh, scale replicas of. Everything from B-52s to uh, C-17s and C-5s. Right, right. Uh, that run on multiple of those little terminals. Yeah, that's true. I've seen, there's a there's a great video of someone who built a B-52. That's the one I was thinking of, too. Suckers yeah. of like 20, 20, 25 feet wingspan or something. Excuse me, something, something like that. Gee, uh, I was in a mood tonight, I'll I, tell you. <laughs> you either had a good or a bad day. I'm not sure which. Um, yeah, the B-52 is cool. I not over with yet. <laughs> Anyways, um, <laughs> so uh, that's pretty cool. The uh, the uh, really fast, uh, I'm going to have to watch this video when I can watch it. I, a minute yeah. ago I tried to play it, and all of a sudden the uh, Skype quality just dropped through the floor, so i got to be careful here. Anyways, uh, welcome, folks, uh, on that note, to uh, episode, <laughs> I think it's 215 of Uncontrolled Airspace, <laughs> the uh, General Aviation Podcast recording this episode on Wednesday evening, December 1st, 2010. It's December, oh my goodness. Um, oh my God, oh my God. Yeah, I know. And joining me here in the, well, what do you know down in Florida about December? Come on. Well, it's supposed to be like 40 tonight with a 35 wind chill. Well, that's pretty cold. Down here. That's pretty Where cold. Where you live? Yes. No kidding. We just had a cold front come through. Uh, I got a fire going in the fireplace, trying to trying to at least save what I got. I got to go shut the, the the bedroom windows here. A little while, I'll freeze my. I'll, yeah, I'll freeze my. It starts to get you know within ten degrees of freezing. I'll freeze off it, my it is a good time to close the windows. <laughs> He's got to shut the bedroom windows like we didn't shut the bedroom windows three months ago. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Joining me here in the virtual hangar, <laughs> my odd friends. Oh, what the heck? Why are you even bother? I know. My odd friends uh, from Florida. Talking to us from Florida is Jeb Burnside, somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. Huh? Other than being cold, how you doing, Jeb? Fine as frog fur. Ooh. You're going to steal Dave, Dave's thunder here. So it's cold. Oh, I, it's, yeah. It's, it's, an, yeah. It's, it's, been a, it's been a good week. Yeah. Got a lot going on, but yeah. uh, we're getting through it, and... Uh, uh, looking forward to the rest of it. Yeah. So you were telling us before we started recording that your airplane's far, far away. Is that like, do you go through withdrawal when your airplane is yeah, away? Yeah, yeah, I, I do. I, I um, had, had traded it for a car, not literally. Uh, and, and, temporarily. Uh, temporarily. Um, 
flew it up to Georgia, drove a car down, and um, just making plans today to go back and get it. It's been two or three weeks. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and uh, I do miss it. And I've got some things I need to do with it. So Yeah, well, you've got to get it back. Get it back. Got to get back. And also here in the virtual hangar is Dave Higdon, who's joining us from Wichita, Kansas. How you doing, Dave? How you doing tonight? Oh, we're just doing lovely here. Lovely. It was about 21 this morning and got all the way up into the 40s. So it's been a lovely day. Yeah, I know. It's definitely getting to be that time of year. It's uh, um, it's true where I live and it's true where I am. Anyway, so um, and and on which note, let me just say, uh, I'm Jack Hodgson. Hey. And, uh, and I'm coming to you tonight from uh, be- beside the confluence of the Elk and Kanawha Rivers in the ruggedly scenic Charleston, West Virginia area. Uh, um, it's, uh, we're down here again for one of our shows, and uh, I drove down here today from Pittsburgh. We went into, flew into Pittsburgh a couple days ago and, and uh, did our show there, and then loaded everything into a truck and drove down here today, drove through the snow. It was kind of a medium nasty day weather-wise uh drove through snow no kidding yeah really it wasn't as bad as it as it can be it really in the scheme of things it it wasn't that bad at all but uh you are kind of up there elevation wise so it'll get snow there sooner than it will yeah i mean i was i was watching the gps as we drove down this uh, what was it interstate 79 i think and uh um, we were above 1,000 feet um, most of the drive so uh, you know it's nothing to sneeze at and uh and uh, it, it was snowing, you know, occasionally snowing pretty good uh, throughout the the, uh, the trip. And we made it down here to uh, to uh, Charleston, West Virginia, which, uh, as near as I can tell, is sort of in the southern end of West Virginia. And uh, and it's it's cold. There's no question about it. Um, but the locals were really complaining about how cold it was. They apparently, yeah. you know, there's a kind well, of... Well, we're talking as a, as a cold front has come through and swept from, from west to east across the U.S. And... Uh, it went through here, um, you know, this morning, uh, or, or early this morning, and uh, weather's been changing pretty much all day. It's been windy. I heard somebody do a major go around earlier um, uh, at the runway, mm-hmm. uh, and that's just you know the nature of the beast. Um, we're feeling it down here with with 40s tonight, so yeah. uh, hopefully that won't was, last much longer. Was trading communiques with some aviation folks uh, that uh, I work with uh, who are based in London. And London's been getting a major snowstorm, apparently. Yeah. It's like, wow, you guys aren't snowed in. Well, they battled their way in, and now they're wondering why, because there's nobody else in the office, and the phone's not ringing, and this, you know, most of the other people stayed home. And I'm kind of like, well, duh. Yeah. Well, it's a snow Al, day, dude. You know, it's, it's the old, you know, the old thing. Al Gore, please pick up the white courtesy <laughs> phone nearest you for a message. <laughs> Um, so, uh, uh, I was thinking of Al Gore this afternoon. Uh, there's a Shoney's restaurant right down the street from, uh, the hotel here. And, uh, I said, I want to go eat in Shoney's because Al Gore tells a funny Shoney's story, which I won't relate here, but check out Al Gore's, uh, talk on the TED website, ted.com. Okay. Anyways, um, aviation airplanes, um, Let's see now. Uh, one of my least favorite aviation, I don't know what you call it, documentaries or stories or whatever, um, was, a, uh, was a series that, that a guy did about 10, 15 years ago. Um, yeah. a, uh, a tech columnist by the name of Robert Cringley, um, who was a bit of an aviation fan, uh, and decided that he was going to build an airplane in some ridiculously short period of time. And he wasn't merely, I think we talked about this on the podcast years ago, yeah. um, he wasn't merely going to build like a kid airplane, he was going to build 
And he wasn't merely going to build a plans airplane. He was going to build an airplane from scratch in this ridiculously uh-huh. short period of time. And he failed miserably. I mean, it was... Oh, I, it, I would guess. It was embarrassing to watch. And, uh, um, and, and I really in, was really disappointed in the whole thing because I felt it gave aviation a bad... Because this guy has a lot of visibility in the non-aviation world, and it could have been a great you know, uh, mm-hmm. ambassador kind of thing for aviation. And instead it made it all look silly and uh, only because he was silly about the whole thing. Anyways, I come mm-hmm. across a story, um, in the last couple of days, um, from the website Gizmodo, uh, headline is how to build your own airplane in two weeks. And I'm thinking, Oh man, here we go all over again. Um, but this is a little different story and I don't know whether this is more plausible or not, but let's see if I can pull out the relevant pieces here. Um, it says earlier this month, Doug Berry set out to build his very own airplane. Uh, and now he has a shiny new four seater with a turbocharged engine and a sleek carbon fiber body. Um, and, uh, it said, it for, and I'm paraphrasing now, it said that he was a little unsure whether he could do it so quickly, whether he could do a good job with it. Um, but, uh, apparently he signed up with a, uh, uh, glass airs two weeks to taxi program, uh, right. where you can build, uh, in his case, he built a glass air sportsman TC, which is a cool airplane, by the way, I think. Um, and, uh, uh, as part of this kind of total immersion vacation thing, um, they, uh, he presumably with a lot of help, uh, built this airplane. And, uh, so I don't know. I, I mean, I, I kind of have a couple of questions out of this. All right. First of all, do you buy that you can build a quality airplane under yeah, those circumstances. Absolutely. You do. Uh, editor, e- editor at Kit Planes Magazine, Mark Cook. Yeah, that's uh, right. Did, did one of these. He's got a sportsman. He built it in, in, in two weeks. Um, I don't know what the benchmark is for having built it. I think it you know it has to start in taxi and run on its own or something like that. I don't know that it was flown within two weeks, but it was a, it was a viable airplane easily in two weeks. Uh, he's been flying it all over the West Coast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, this, now, this has been going on. This is going on three or four years. Now, this kind of thing is apparently kosher within the whatever the latest sure. iteration of the fifty-one percent rules are, or whatever sure. they're called these days. The uh, the uh, the FA rules talk about you know it's it's amateur built. It's supposed to be for the learning experience. You're not learning a whole lot when you're when you're fabricating a piece of aluminum, but you are learning a lot when you start to assemble all those pieces of aluminum. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's that's the uh, um, I think the the policy behind you know the amateur built rule. These are experimental aircraft, um, but they perform well. They're economical. Uh, they're easily equipped with with modern avionics. It's a no brainer for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Admittedly, on programs like this, uh, part of what makes the two weeks to taxi possible is that. Somehow or another, the avionics are being done separately, right? Right. And put in okay. put in at the appropriate time. They put the panel in, wire it up. Uh, you can taxi and fly the airplane without an elaborate panel. What a lot of guys do is is uh, buy what they want, work with the shop. The shop will fabricate the the pieces, parts, put it in the 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 metal mount, ship it to you, all tested and ready to to plug in and power up. Then you put it in. Now that 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 can take weeks away from what a normal builder might do if they were doing the whole thing themselves. So there's some uh, there's some uh, flexibility in how you get this done. Yeah, the, the the thing about the two weeks to taxi, of course, is all the parts are basically prefabricated at the factory, 
and you're working in the factory with factory personnel who have done this before and are showing you how to to assemble various parts and what order to assemble those parts and are doing quality control all along the way. They have professional supervision. Um, it's not two guys in a case of beer, although that would that would be fun. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, well, okay. I'll buy it, I guess. Yeah, um, but... But in um, Cook, uh, um, when he did this, um, when he was when he did all this project, he wrote it up in Kipling's magazine, and it was a several part piece. He he, uh, he did a good job with the whole thing. And as I say, he's still flying the airplane today, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. Now, my other question about uh, coming out of this story is just generally the, the appeal of doing one of these uh, you know total immersion things, where you like build an airplane or something aviation related, is is very strong for me. Um, I, there was a period of time where I really desperately wanted to attend one of the EAA, what are they called? I was just Googling, trying to find the official name, the Air Academy programs, not the, yeah, not yeah. the kids program, because there's a great right. kids program that they do in the summer. But I think all throughout the year, they do these, I don't know if they're week-long or weekend-long, um, total immersion things where you go and live in the dorms and, uh, and, and spend all day long in the workshops and in classes learning how to, whatever the subject is, whether it's learning how to weld or learning how to build a metal airplane or a fabric airplane or whatever. Um, I've always thought that was very cool. Have other of you had any, any experience with any of those kinds of programs? I went to a week-long school at uh, Vans Aircraft years ago. Vans? Oh, really? What was that like? Yeah. Uh, it 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 was really useful. It, it was really helpful. I was going to start an RV six. I came home with a tail kit and finished that, and then got impatient and bought a Cherokee. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, the 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 tricks and the skills, uh, the use of the tools that they taught us in that week, uh, were stuff that wouldn't be intuitively obvious trying to pick it up on your own reading a book. It's really something. It was a lot of stuff that you is best absorbed by having somebody show you, do it for you, show you, let you do it, and then show you what you did wrong and let you make another try at it. Mm-hmm. That included everything from cutting and bending sheet metal to uh, drilling the holes and using Clecos and uh uh, driving flush rivets and uh, driving uh, regular roundhead AN rivets, uh, dimpling sheet metal for some flush riveting, uh, countersinking, drilling the skin for others, uh, how to make spars, how to level things over big distances. There's a lot of swingles. Jeb, go ahead. No, I'm sorry, Dave, go ahead. I was just going to say, like, uh, I'd never thought of it before, but you could take about 16 feet of clear plastic tubing, put water in it with food coloring to color it, and you have a giant level mm-hmm. that oh, you yeah. can stretch out across 13, 14 feet, and where the water hits on each end of the tube is the same spot. Yeah. Uh, now you could do it with a laser level pretty inexpensively, Yeah. but uh, this is even cheaper than buying a cheap laser level, so... Uh, it was very worthwhile for me. Cool. Yeah, cool. Well, I want to do one of those one day. I just have to find the right time. Uh, get on well, you know, there's there's total immersion aircraft construction programs. There's total immersion certificate programs. Uh, you know, one of the more popular uh, things these days is doing the weekend ground schools to get to knock out a written exam. Right, yeah. Um, and then there's, of course, you know, um, 
people who I think regularly, I'm certainly aware of, of two or three uh, in the past who have you know gotten from ab initio through private pilot in, in 30 days. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there's instrument training schools. They all have value. Um, Increasingly, I would think that you know anybody who can afford to buy an air, own and operate an airplane or rent an airplane is pretty busy, and they need to kind of concentrate their time. It's a good program for a lot of people. It's a good choice for a lot of people. Put that way. Yeah. So congratulations to Doug Barry for uh, for building his airplane. Very cool, kind of inspirational, yeah, actually. Yeah. Obviously, if you listen to us talk about it and uh, um, check out some of these, uh, the the I think it's the EAA Air Academy. I'm searching the web trying to find a good link, and I can't find one. But uh, I bet Jeff will by the time he puts up the uh, the show notes. And uh, finally, I was while we were talking, I was Googling. I was trying to recall the the the, uh, the uh, Robert Cringley build an airplane in uh, you know two whatever it was thirty days. That's what it was here. Build, build and fly an airplane in thirty days. Um, the blurb on Amazon for the video ends with. Uh, uh, it talks about what he did and how he did it and so forth. And the, the last sentence of the blurb, it says, In the end, as one observer noted, this video special, quote, is as much about airplanes as Moby Dick is about fishing. <laughs> uh, let's see now. Um, you know, that, that, that was kind of... A- I'm not sure anybody put it that way, but when uh, when this thing was in play originally, that was a little bit of that. That's very similar to the reaction that it got in real time. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It pissed me off, quite frankly. Sorry, listeners. We have a couple of listeners who hate it when I use that phrase. I apologize. Um, so Dave Shell better check in. Yeah, Dave Shell better checked in, and yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. he was asking us about. Uh, using chains to tie down airplanes. Cha-cha-chain. Uh, yeah, he was wondering, uh, I forget the exact circumstances, the exact context of this, but uh, he was concerned uh, whether or not chain, using chains as a, a, to tie down the wings of your airplane, to tie down your airplane, could, uh, to, whether they don't have enough give, they don't have enough stretch to them, and as a result uh, could potentially <laughs> rip the wings off of your airplane. That was Dave's concern. Um, and... Uh, um, and so that's, Where's Adam and Jamie when you need them? Yeah, yeah, that's right. We need a little testing there, right? Um, I, I've certainly I encountered. Um, I've visited air, air, um, airports where the uh, the transient tie downs had chains for you to tie down with, and uh, um, uh, never lost my wings. Well, what's your thought on this? Eh. Yeah, you know. <laughs> um, Look, if if the tie down holds, yeah. It doesn't matter whether it's rope or chain. If the tie-down holds and the wind exceeds the load limits of the airplane, uh, of, of the surface, something's going to give. Uh, if the tie-down doesn't hold, if the rope breaks or the chain breaks, then you're off on a whole different you know, joyride anyway. It's broken. Uh, personally, I, I, I'm kind of warm to the idea of knowing that it won't break because weather that is so bad that it can bend the airplane without breaking a tie-down rope or chain is, well, a rope is pretty rare. Mm-hmm. And if it would break a rope, then I'm out of luck anyway. Well, not only that, but I, I don't want to be around too much when there's weather like that uh, in, in the forecast. 
and B, I'm probably going to take the airplane with me. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> so, you, you have a very particular plan about these kinds of things, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, what I, I can see that there's a qualitative difference between them. I've never heard of anybody's wings getting ripped off uh, because they were tied down with chain. Uh, I hear a lot of ropes breaking and coming untied. Yeah. Um, the, the airport in Tifton, uh, that I, in Georgia, that I, I uh, visit a lot. They have chains in the tie down for the transients, and. Um, those chains are fairly heavy chains. They're, they're they've been there a while, so they're not you know brand new or anything like that. But they're still in good shape. Uh, the thing about them though is they're heavy, and they yeah. sag a lot, and it's hard to get, get them tight on the yeah. on the tie downs. So I leave them with you know some droop in them, so that there is some give, there is some tightening of the chain that has to occur before. Um, the airplane goes too far. It's not. It's, it's going to roll a little bit as the punchline. There's some give in that design, and I think uh, in a lot of situations uh, when when the chains are properly used, um, that is probably might be might be in certain situations better than rope. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we yeah. were we were blocked on a trip by level five weather. Uh, many years ago, and we were transient at uh, Greenville, Mississippi. And we tied down ropes, which were attached to cables that ran right. along the ground. Right. And uh, kind of a gang tie-down setup. Uh, we, we parked where we were away from any other airplanes by several spaces, uh, just because that's where the guy put us. Uh, one when we woke up to the weather coming through later that night, I, t- I told Annie, the bride, they said, don't be surprised if we get back to the airport and there's nothing there but three tie-down rings <laughs> <laughs> from the airplane because it was that, it was that severe. Uh, I said, but don't worry, you know, it's all insured and, you know, we'll see when we get there. When we got there the next morning, our airplane was there. It had moved a couple of feet. Mm-hmm. Uh but about four spaces away, a, uh, a baron had uh, one rope broke, and I guess the other one came untied. And mm-hmm. it weathervaned right into a twin beach. Mm-hmm. And I kind of went, well, you know, uh, I'm glad we parked as far away as we did. Uh, but in that situation, you know, one of our ropes could have broken, too, and it could have wound up on its back real, real easily. Yeah. Short of a uh, short of a uh, you know a genuine fatality or you know a, a human being injured, the, the saddest things I've ever seen at Oshkosh were a couple of times when uh, a big storm came through and some planes broke loose. Yeah, you know, yeah. and it's yeah. it's sad enough that that you know a plane breaks loose and it is damaged. What's really you know just so sad is to see it tumble into a, a yeah. innocent, an innocent airplane that you know. Yeah. Was tied down well, you know. And I'm, you know, the, the insurance companies really should be thankful um, that you know some kind of a uh, an airplane chewing storm that hasn't come through Oshkosh oh. at the wrong time. Yeah, 
Tell me about it. I, I've always wondered about that, you know. I mean, because that's, that's, that's tornado country, you know. Uh, yeah, sure. And uh, it's not inconceivable that a tornado could wander. You know, it's like <laughs> the aviation well, insurers, a, man, a huge percentage of the insured aircraft in the, in the country are sitting Even without field. a tornado, a, a microburst at the wrong place, yeah, at the wrong time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, which is a lot more likely than a, than a full full blown tornado. But just the idea, you know, hailstorms too, you oh. know, things like that. Yeah. Holy, holy mackerel. Yeah. yeah. Well, my very first trip to Oshkosh, uh, uh, second to last day, we had a a frog strangler, frog drowner, uh, with a lot of wind. Uh, I mean, it just soaked the place mercil- mercilessly. Uh, three or four airplanes flipped over. A whole bunch of campsites got blown away. Uh, but the worst thing that happened was post-storm when somebody started their airplane and was letting it warm up while it was still tied down. And the ground was so wet that the tie-downs gave, and off she went. Wow. Yeah, it's... uh, that's the regulars to Oshkosh know that that's one of the two or three most you know highly uh, enforced rules is that every airplane is tied down. Period. Yeah. No yeah. exceptions. You know. No exceptions. And uh, because you know you don't want them things blowing around. Um, so, anyways, David, I'm pretty sure frog strangling is something else altogether. I. <laughs> I'll take your word. <laughs> frog frog strangling refers well at least at least in my experience. I don't know about West Virginia, Jack, where you are. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it basically basically refers to a heavy rain. Frog strangling? No, frog dr- frog dr- a frog a frog strangler. Oh, yeah. really? Yes. Okay, well, see, I was just kind of, oh, never mind. It's a family podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I picked nothing, right up on that. Nothing to do with a chicken. Yeah. No, no chickens, no chickens or frog. No, no, let's put the no amphibians were harmed in the production of this podcast. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, how do we segue into this story now? Let's see now. So, <laughs> no, I'm going to skip ahead to another one here. Let's yeah, see. Yeah, juggle that one. <laughs> Okay, here we go. Um, I think this is the story that I am jumping ahead here a couple. I think somebody in the forums or someone sent me an email and described this as being the world's worst example of mainstream media writing about aviation. Um, for you guys, this is the story that's uh, entitled uh, Pilot in Stable Condition After Crash Landing. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Um, and that's just. I love that. Isn't this, I love that. But, isn't this a great story? I, it's only four paragraphs. So let me see if I can read it here. Um, a Sugarland man. This is uh, Nacogdoches County. Where is this? Is Florida? Texas. 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 Excuse me. I'm really bad about this. It's Florida, Texas. It's all the same thing when you live in New England. Um, is in stable condition after crash, crash landing his airplane uh, in Nacogdoches County late Sunday morning. According to the Department of Public Safety, Jeffrey Clark was flying. Now here we go. You ready? Pay attention. Was flying his Piper Cessna 2 from Sugarland to Shreveport when both engines lost fuel pressure. The pressure loss caused both engines, the pressure loss caused both engines to lose RPMs. Uh, Clark attempted an emergency landing at the uh, airport around 11.30 in the morning, ended up crashing north of the runway uh, on a couple of uh, public roads. The pilot's in stable condition with back injury at the Nagadoches Medical Center. Um, you know what that is, don't you? And what's, uh, Yeah, what's that? 
It's a Piper Seneca too. Yeah, that's what it looks like to uh, me. Okay. I, I just happened to come across this accident brief in the last couple of days. That's exactly what it was. So, yeah, it, it looks like it on the trailer. Uh, good note taking, huh? Yeah. Okay, that explains it all then. So it's a Piper. Yeah. That that does everything falls yeah, that into does place. Look like a Seneca, everything yeah. falls into place when you yeah. suddenly have that, right? Because <laughs> so, so it did have two engines, and it did, uh, you know. So, but. Uh, but have no fear. The final paragraph of the whole the whole piece is that uh, uh, is that Trooper J. Stone investigated the accident. So um, all is going you to know. She got you know she got that wrong. She got the airplane type wrong. Looking at her picture, she's doing the best she can. Um, Wait a minute. You know it's, it's okay. I'm t- the, the woman who wrote this. Yeah, I don't where I don't see her picture. Is she, her picture here someplace? Click, you know, up at the top, the byline. Click the bio. Oh, okay, okay. Hang on. Here we go. Oh, bio. I see it now. Yeah, and uh, oh, okay. Morgan Thomas. Yeah. Not at all she, like Morgan Fairchild. She's only been there a year. Yeah. You know. You know. Okay. She got she got a lot of the other stuff okay because that that's in exactly what happened is um, the airplane lost. Fuel pressure in both engines. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that that's kind of suspicious by itself, don't you think? You think? Uh, you, you think? Thanks, guy. Wonder um, just how much gasoline was in them fuel tanks. <laughs> okay. One of the one of the one of the things you have to have to have fuel pressure is fuel. Got it. Got where, it. Where the valve was. So you think this is the, the fuel pressure loss? I wouldn't. I don't. I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying. When both engines lost fuel pressure, is a euphemism for you know. I'm just saying, but I'm not saying. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So okay. It's, it's not that he's saying that. Right. He's just saying. You're just yeah. saying. You're just saying. Um, what else here? Uh, Doesn't appear to have been a post-crash fire. Uh, <laughs> another data point. <laughs> um, so maybe this is a segue into the story that I wanted to mention. I just wanted to touch on this for a few minutes. This is pretty serious. Um, we, I think we even talked about it on the podcast. There was a story uh, 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 back in early November where a uh, Piper uh, Seminole uh, crashed down in uh, uh, near Palm Beach International Airport. Uh, and I believe four people on board were all killed, but, but multiple people were, were killed. Sure. And, uh, um, and apparently NTSB has released some sort of report. It's only been a little while, so I can't imagine it's a very... Uh, it's a, pre- yeah. a prelim. But uh, what they're saying it. is that the uh, that, um, the fuel lever for let me see if I can find this here. And Jeb, I'll tell, tell you exactly what. Tell me what it says, left, Jeb. The yeah. left engine fuel valve was off. Yeah. And there was no fuel in the lines from the fuel valve to the engine. Yeah. And, and uh, the there the uh, also the propeller was not feathered. Ooh. Okay. They didn't have they didn't have time. They crashed on a taxiway. Yeah. Ooh. So basically, the engine quit, and they and everything went to heck. Um, yeah, yeah. Because oh, it went it, farther than that, brother. Yeah, it went, yeah. It went it went around the bend. Yeah. Um, it, what the the other punchline here? Punchline was is, is not it is an inappropriate term to use. The other part of this story is that um, this was a flight school operation, Florida Tech, out, based in Melbourne. Um, I was through there a couple of summers ago. Um, you know, getting fuel and using the facilities and things like that. It's a nice little operation. A bunch of young kids was, you know, college students or, or um, uh, post-college, maybe even high school, I don't know, were running the store and, and doing a pretty good job of it. Um, 
but this was an airplane from that operation. And I think uh, at least two, oh, yeah, it was two flight students and a Florida Tech employee, plus another unrelated uh, instructor were on board the airplane. So it hit them very hard. And if any, any of their... Uh, any of their family is listening, um, you know, uh, we're really sorry. Our thoughts are with you. Yeah. No, sort of. Hadn't a, it been like a year since his last multi-time? Well, the CFI was, the CFI was current. Um, nominally, she was in the right seat. I don't know who was in the left seat. Uh, I don't know, you know, what, what all went on. But someone turned off the left fuel valve. Uh, and someone didn't double check that. Yeah, turned off, or, or or possibly never got turned on in the first place. Possibly never got turned on in the first place. Although, you know, maybe part of the maybe it was on when they got in and they moved it in the, into the wrong position. Yeah, th- yeah. Thinking they're turning it on, uh, but um, uh, it had just enough fuel to get through taxi run up and, and take off right. before it quit. Right. And that sort of leads me to my question about this whole thing. What's you know you hear about this from time to time, where a uh, that that someone has has incorrectly operated the fuel system on an airplane. Um, the valves are in the wrong pl- position, or they haven't pumped some fuel, or you know uh, what what's the virtue of these complex fuel systems um, when, when they can be difficult to operate like this? You know. It, I mean, well, why, any, why does a twin any, have two fuel selectors? Any, any device or any system, any, any device or any system can be um, thwarted, shall we say? Uh-huh. Um, you know, anything man designs and builds can can be broken um, by some, by another man. Uh, so, I don't I don't know any I don't know much about the Seminole. Never flown one. Uh, it's basically a twin double breasted uh, arrow. Um, Yep, the systems are not that complicated. I don't know the arrangement of the of the fuel selector valves on that airplane. I believe uh, that that one's pretty simple because you got. I would left, think so. Right well, it's good. It's got and right fuel. Yeah, it's got um, left, right, cross feet off. I would presume. Yeah. Uh, f- um, for, but I don't know how in how many controls there physically are. There probably are two controls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And. Um, I, you know how that happens. I don't know. It's it's a uh, it's an ergonomics issue. Uh, it's a symbology issue, um, and it's well, it's it, running. It, it had been a year a since, the, since the pilot last flew multi-engine, which okay. means it had been a, a year or better since he flew that particular model airplane. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. A, uh, a long time ago. A long time ago, I was on the verge of getting a ride to Oshkosh in in a an aircraft, a twin. Um, that I guess I'm not going to name publicly because I'm not positive that I've got this story right, but just to, to take this as a sort of a, an example. Um, and I did some reading about this airplane, and it had a reputation, uh, it, had a lot of, uh, it had a bunch of crashes that were apparently the result of people not knowing how to operate the fuel system because it had multiple tanks scattered all over the aircraft. And it was You're thinking important. of the Aerostar. I am thinking of the Aerostar, yeah. What's the story on that? Is that, was that, is that a deserved reputation? It was a reputation it had. I don't know how well deserved it was. I've never flown an Aerostar either. Uh-huh. Um, yes, there are multiple tanks. That the systems in that airplane, generally speaking, are complicated um, and, and expensive to maintain and, and, uh, and to operate. Um, that was the reputation it had. I don't know how well deserved it was. Yeah. 
And do these systems yeah. need to be this complicated, or is it just a design choice? No, and I think what Dave was about to say is is uh, um, that really applied to earlier models of the Aerostar. Oh, okay. L- later models uh, simplified, greatly simplified the fuel system. So perhaps there was not only uh, a valid rumor going around, but also recognition on the part of one or one or another manufacturers. Mm-hmm. There were several manufacturers of the Aerostar over the years. Yeah. Um, one of those manufacturers decided they needed to clean up the fuel system. Yeah. Now you've modded the fuel system on on the uh, Debonair. Um, yeah. Not nearly yeah. that that exotically, but you have, yeah. and it involves yeah. some some manual stuff. And I and I take it that's never been an issue for you. You're comfortable with those mm-hmm. procedures and. Ab- absolutely. Basically, um, to to kind of set the stage here, my airplane has came from the factory with two forty gallon uh, wing tanks for a total of eighty gallons. Um, after I bought it, I installed uh, 15-gallon tip tanks on each wing tip. So basically, I've got instead of 40 gallons in each wing, I've got 55 gallons in each wing. Okay, and if that's the way you think now, if that's the way you think about it, then you're you're going to be just fine. And what the way it works is, I can fly in the left tank, or I can fly in the right tank. That's the way my fuel valve is set up. So once there is space as I as I fly along. Once there is space in the uh, forty gallon main tanks um, to take the fuel from the tip tanks, I'll switch on a transfer pump, electrical pump. I have switches in the panel and um, transfer the fuel to re- help replenish that tank, giving me access to all fifty five gallons. That's the simple way to think about the fuel system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got four tanks, but I'm really only using one of them at a time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really, I've really only got two tanks, and and uh, that's that's how to think about uh, you know the fuel situation yeah. in my book. Yeah, David. It, it, you know, one of the one of the complicating matters on this is it, it for weight and balance and capacity considerations. Uh, designers very often have to spread around where they put the fuel to meet the mission requirements they're designing the airplane for. Those tanks all have to be vented. If you plumb some of this stuff together in its simplest, most straightforward form, then you get into complicated issues of it venting and fuel running overboard on a lower vent from a from a lower tank or a different tank. Uh, you get issues of transferring it, of keeping it moving safely through the system in a predictable manner so you don't get a trim or an out-of-balance situation. Uh, if you want to see how complicated that that can lead an airplane's fuel system to be watch the jimmy stewart movie spirit of st louis yeah it, there's there's scenes in yeah. there where he's writing down you know times and and how much fuel he's used uh and then it's got this whole plethora of valves and tubes hmm. that are on the panel in front that he's got to change this one off and this one on and that one off and that one on to keep fuel moving to the single point that feeds the engine, but at the same time feeding fuel out of the out of the airplane in a way that keeps it in trim and balance left to right. Yeah. Uh, it, it's remarkably complicated. <laughs> right. For the one listener who not not in the know, that was the story of Lindbergh's uh, Atlantic crossing. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> For the one, the one listener. The one listener who didn't get that. I, uh, it's most everybody um, knows that, but uh, 
Yeah, well, the, we knew we just we just, just met a, we just found out recently a guy we know has never seen office space. So there you go. <laughs> well, that's right. That's right. All right. I don't know. If, if there's if there's any takeaway from the yeah this uh, the Seminole crash though, it is once you get the engine running, engines running, um, think very hard and very long and very carefully about whether to change the fuel selectors um, from from engine start. Through and into initial climb. Mm-hmm. Uh, leave generally. I just want to leave the, even if inadvertently I start uh, the engine on the tank that has the least amount of fuel in it of the two. Um, I'll leave it there because yeah. I don't want to move the the fuel selector and risk uh, positioning it incorrectly. I've got the engine or running. Or maybe finding a little bubble in the line, or, or finding a little bubble in the line, or, or something like that at the wrong time. It takes a certain amount of time for the fuel beyond the selector, between the selector and the engine, to be consumed. And in so many cases, and I, I hope to God this is not one of them, but in so many cases, um, there's been just enough fuel to get the airplane about 50 feet above the runway before the engine quits. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and before taxiing uh, both the airplanes we owed, uh, I made it a point of having the engine run off all the tanks at some point during the, the warm-up. And while I'm programming the GPS or copying a flight plan down, I started on one tank. I'll let it run four or five minutes there while I'm do- getting ready. Then I'll change tanks before I taxi so that it runs mm. over there for a good while. Uh, because I I'm not sure, sure I would do that. It draws from both tanks. I'm not sure I, I would do that. Yeah, you Why don't know try? how much yeah. you don't know how much fuel it's going it's it's going to draw from the second tank, um, and again, you don't know how much fuel is in the system between the the valve and the engine. Uh, you could be sucking another uh, um, uh, another air bubble that way too. I I just really like to leave the fuel selector, you know, position it for engine start, and then leave it alone mm-hmm. until I'm airborne and have some altitude. Yeah, and I did. I, I I understand that completely. I like to make sure that it would draw fuel from both tanks, because of stories I'd heard about it. Yeah, you know, I, I get that. Not drawing from one tank when it drew fine for the other, but the guy only finding out when he'd run one tank dry. Yeah, but I'd hate to have to find out um, that I that tank was dry. Well, no, I, I don't know. It's six of one, half a dozen of another. I, I certainly <laughs> understand. I certainly understand your concern, your operational concern. I think my operational concern overrides yours. Well, so, I, I, so, so I like yours. I just think I always made sure that I had enough time to obviate the idea that I might suck a bubble. Uh, but then that's because I was slow getting out of there. All right. Too many, too many episode title possibilities here. <laughs> um, so um, I, 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 I'm still, yeah, um, I'm still <laughs> chewing. I'm still processing that. Yeah, okay. Um, Please raise your right hand. I, Cedric Mortimer Flapdoodle, do solemnly swear. I, Cedric Mortimer Flapdoodle, do solemnly swear. That the members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are appearing as private individuals. Uh, that the, uh, the, the guys on this podcast are here because they want to be. And that their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations with which they work. And they're not speaking on behalf of their employers. And anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operations. And when they talk about airplanes... 
is obviously very, very general. general. It's very it's general. Don't get ahead of me, son. Sorry, sorry. You should always consider your situation, remember your training, and fly the aircraft. You should think about where you are, how you got there, and what to Congratulations. do. Congratulations. Thank you. Let's see now. Uh, <laughs> David. Oxford. I think you've used that one. Yeah. We, uh, we, uh, uh, in just recent episodes, maybe the last episode, I forget now, uh, one of us, maybe Jeb, I think, uh, suggested that all the craziness in uh, airline security these days was a tremendous opportunity for GA to position itself as being the sane way to travel. Um, and, uh, and now, David, you're calling our attention to um, a report that's saying that maybe that's what's happening. What's, what's this story all about, the one that's entitled well, think, yeah, Crowded yeah, Airlines? I think Jeb and I were both pushing that idea yeah. and that it would be kind of logical to expect that that might happen. And? Uh, and over the Thanksgiving weekend, uh, we see that uh, that uh, even though the airplanes were full, uh, they weren't overly full because a lot of people got off the airlines and decided to drive. And a smaller number, but no less significant, because they could have been spending that money on an airline ticket, chartered airplanes to take them to where they wanted to go over the holidays. And that's continuing, apparently. Uh, charter flying, according to the latest stats that I saw earlier today, I should have plugged them in here. Charter flying was up in October, uh, significantly over October of a year ago, and it looked like it was headed up again in November although the numbers won't be crunched for a couple more weeks. And some people are crediting part of that to the latest warm and friendly, let's get personal, can I buy you a drink after I fill you up, TSA policy. Mm-hmm. Yep. You can buy me a drink before you fill me up. But <laughs> Okay. So, well, I guess that's good for – it's, it's, well, it's, Then they can't expense it if they do it first. It's, uh, I'm, well, I'm not going to be the one springing for the drinks. You're not drawing me into this conversation. <laughs> you're just not. All right. Um, it's good that uh, this kind of, but it's kind of a bittersweet thing that uh, this is what it takes to uh, to uh, get well, people to fly. If you've got two or three, especially if you've got more than one person, and, and I'm thinking, you know, the small business, um, or even a medium sized uh, or a small department in a medium sized business. If if you've got a travel budget and you got to move two or three people or even three or four people um, from you know uh, a non-hub to another non-hub, the quickest, easiest, probably cheapest way to do that is via a charter. Whether it's you know chartering an SR22 or a Seneca or even a King Air. Um, by the time you finish, you figure in um, all the wait times. You figure in the multiple airline tickets, the extra fees, uh, the rental cars, and everything else. You might be lots better off using charter. Oh, and it, it and it all goes out the window if you got to go to an airport that the carrier support that still leaves you with two or three hours of drive to get where you really want to be. Right. Uh, right. You know, then pretty soon you're looking at maybe an extra night of uh, uh, in hotel for all those people, two, three, four people. And all their extra meals, and it gets expensive fast, baby. Mm-hmm. Charter can be cheap. Fifty-two percent. November was running fifty-two percent over November of two thousand nine, as of about the third week of the month. And rental cars was up about eleven percent. So clearly, the uh, 
the uh, success of the airlines in finally becoming profitable consistently uh, the last uh, year or so, uh, filling airplanes, high load factors. Uh, we figured that out the instant we checked in for our flight home from Atlanta last week. <laughs> the computer asked us if we were if if we're not in a hurry, would we consider taking a bump? Yeah. Before it printed out our boarding pass, we had to say no, thanks. We'll take our our guaranteed seat. Thank you. Uh, so this is all having it, and, and the fact that fares are edging up and they're adding on fees for luggage uh, I mean God help you if you got to check two bags these days oh, really? uh, you, you might get a $200 round trip but you're looking at another 100 bucks or better just to get your bags through yeah. uh, and I'm not talking about any personal items either so it's all driving traffic away from the airlines baby yeah. throw in the leave, TSA leave the, and no drinks and jeez Leave the woman at home. No, 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 no. Oh, man, this episode. Um, yeah, they're charging now for uh, preferred seating, too. You, uh, uh, Hell, they charge oh, for the exit aisle now. They, char- they, ch- they charge, dude, they charge just to make a seat selection. Yeah, well. Yeah. Whether it's a primo seat or not. Yeah, yeah. It's, otherwise, yeah. You, otherwise, you take potluck when you get to the run to the gate. Yeah. It's like, come on. I know. It's crazy. And it's, it's like it's it's like going down it's like going down to the restaurant and say I would really like your choicest fillet mignon and they say sure that'll only be eighteen bucks uh, would you like that on a plate plates are seven bucks <laughs> and if would you, you like, like a silverware that? that'll be another three bucks and your baked potato that's free but the plate it comes on that's two fifty okay. Uh-huh. And, and no salt for you. That's right. Yeah. And right. don't even ask about the butter. The cow had the week off. All right. Once again, we need to move into a serious subject after being. <laughs> um, let's see now. I, I've changed the order around a little bit here. First of all, again, uh, um, Jeff, you have called our attention to um, a story from the Washington Post about the. Uh, the crash up in Alaska that killed, among others, uh, Senator Ted Stevens. Oh, yeah. What's yeah. notable about this story? It, what's notable about it to me is just that it exists. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, it, it, it was a fairly um, descriptive story um, relative to the plane crash aftermath. Let me, let me find a link and load it up here. Uh, but basically, this was the crash that killed uh, Senator Ted Stevens, I guess it was in August. And... Um, uh, it was a de Havilland turbine otter, I believe, that crashed into the side of a mountain near Dillingham, Alaska. Um, and uh, several people died. I think four people died, including the senator. Uh, and then three or four people survived. And it was the kind of the story of the, of the survivors and what it took, what, what they went through. One, the, the only person who could move up after the crash apparently was like a 14-year-old kid. Uh, whose father had just been killed, mm-hmm. and he was he was able to crawl around the wreckage and, and find you know stuff uh, that they needed you know water whatever, um, and it was like twelve hours it was like six hours before someone got to them and that person happened to be a physician but she had no supplies mm-hmm. it was another twelve hours before she got any supplies and probably twenty four before they even got out of there. Mm-hmm. 
and we're talking about multiple broken bones and and you know basically being immobile and you know for a lot of, a lot of that time not knowing you know if someone was going to come get you and being in pain throughout it it was it was a it was an interesting article i thought uh, i never read one quite like it uh, at least as as contemporaneous as, as this one interesting i'll have to take a look i'll have to take a look it's uh, really quite a uh, colorful rendering of the story yeah. Uh, and if you follow the factuals from the NTSB and, uh, you know, interviews with O'Keefe and, and, and the details that he'd fill in, uh, it's almost graphic enough to make you kind of sit back and, and, and want to put a disclaimer on it. You may want to consider not reading this if you regularly fly little airplanes. Yeah, I wouldn't go quite that far. I think you can well, see I'm the just same thinking thing. about the, the, the queasy among our our uh, community and, and some of their relatives. Well, if, if, know how if, yeah. fair it is, and no, it's not likely. But then, when you f- sort of fill in that kind of graphic detail of what the experience is like when it does happen, it can be enough to make somebody go, you know, maybe renting a car is not a bad idea. Jeb, what are you going to well, say? The, the same thing can happen renting a car. Same thing can happen in an airliner. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> The same thing can happen going out of the to the mailbox. Um, yeah, there's a risk, but now we have I almost to. Almost open my hand opening a beer. Yeah. <laughs> okay. and, and, he, and you've had lots of practice at that. I've had lots of practice, although I've been having to break in a real opener because the stuff that I've been drinking this week won't twist off. And Jack knows what that's like. Yeah, I do. Whether, oh, don't even you guys. Uh, 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 that was that was Higdon H I G D O N. I've been. I started watching this new uh, Discovery Channel show. Have you seen this Brewmaster show, David? You'd get no. into this. You'd like this. Uh, no, Jeff I haven't. I haven't too, watched it. It's. Uh, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm trying to avoid because of the potential suck-in factor. Yeah. You know, based on the commercials, I wasn't all that interested in it, and I was just kind of sitting in a hotel room, flipping channels, and I came across it, and I watched a little bit of it, and ended up really liking it. Um, I thought it was pretty interesting, and uh, this guy runs a brewery in Delaware that creates, uh, what do they call it, craft beers, which is... Craft, that's what I'm drinking tonight, is a craft. And and they specialize in making beers out of really bizarre flavors, things that you wouldn't think you'd make beer out of. And it's it's interesting and fun to watch him as they they talk. He talks about you know why he's choosing this and that. And uh, and uh, you know, welcome to the uncontrolled beer podcast. Sorry about that. Let's move on. Um, Vanilla Java Porter. That's what you're drinking tonight. Think about it. Yeah, it's from uh, the uh, Atwater Block Brewing Company in Detroit. Say that name again. Vanilla Java Porter. Oh, I dated her in college. <laughs> <laughs> David, you called her attention to a uh, article. It says uh, uh, some sort of panel that concluded that GA needs grass, a grassroots boost. What's that all about? Well, the uh, Wichita Aero Club uh, yesterday had its second uh, uh, annual uh, issues broadcast with. Uh, some of the industry's uh, most uh, recognized and most influential movers and shakers, Ed Bolin, Pete Bunce, Rod Hightower, uh, Henry Ogrodzinski, and, and uh, unfortunately Craig Fuller couldn't come, so they sent uh, Andy Broom instead from AOPA. But that's NBAA, Gamma, EAA, 
the National Association of State Aviation Officials, NASEO, and AOPA all on this panel at the same time. And their conclusion was that more should be done on a grassroots level to build a pilot, build a pilot population, protect GA airports, and promote the general aviation industry to keep it viable. That's what they said yesterday. That's what Jeb and I and Jack and got countless others, my boss at AOPA, almost 30 years ago. So the first thing we got to tackle, the most important thing, is that we're losing people faster than we're replacing them. This was 1983, kids. It hadn't gotten better. And, boy, they've, you know, they've done to learn to fly and be a pilot. And, and I still never get the sense that they're putting, really putting their money where their mouths are. Because yeah. if, if, if they took this as seriously as they need to, uh, they would be spending money on something other than PR uh, to do something about reversing the pilot population. I'm t- speaking specifically to the OEMs who have the most to lose as a pilot population continues to shrink. And this idea that, well, we'll be the survivors while everybody goes under doesn't cut it because at some point even your survival will be at risk because the population will be too small to support you. Yeah. Do they go and do any, I mean, it's kind of all well and good to kind of make this high-level statement that we need to promote grassroots, you know, uh, you know, aspects of aviation or do a grassroots promotion, but do they get specific? Do they talk about, you know, tactics that might be used? Um, or not, 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 in, not really, no. They talked about the results of some research that's been done, real research recently, into looking at... Uh, what causes people to not finish. Uh, They've been doing some research into uh, uh, what would keep people's interests better and and what might keep people engaged to finish. But, uh, you know, aside from generalities, we we need to find a way to get more people in. We need to find a way to lower the cost of, A, certificating an airplane and, B, owning an airplane to make it more attractive to a broader base of people because this is a business that's finding out that being affordable by only 2 or 3%, that affordable at the new airplane level by only 2 or 3% of the population is not going to keep them growing at the level that they like to because that population is not growing at the level they need it to happen. Right, yeah. It well, just ain't, the numbers just ain't there. Jeff? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly sympathetic all that. Um and getting political here for a moment, then I might suggest that uh, uh, what we need to do is you know, create, a, create a little bit more wealth at the bottom of the curve. And one of the ways to do that is stop supporting these morons that are trying to put all the wealth at the top of the curve. I, I'm, I'm 117, 118% on the same page okay. there. Um, David, what is, this is a little off subject, but I'm curious. What is the Wichita Aero Club? The Wichita Aero Club is kind of a uh, what's the how, how, Jeb? How would you describe the Wings Club in New York or the Washington Aero Club? Or, I'd kind of describe it as an aviation-oriented national press club. Yeah, okay. that's a good. So what they hold these? They just hold these sort of open presentations, panels, and talks, and and who can anybody attend or do you have to be a member of something to attend anybody anybody can attend you pay 40 bucks for the lunch if you're not a member uh-huh. uh, 30 bucks if you are a member uh, they have 
several meetings a year in which they have noteworthy speakers from the industry. Uh, you know, they got Craig Fuller for like their second meeting uh, a week and a half or two weeks after he'd become president of AOPA. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've had Bolin, they've had Bunch both in there. Uh, they've had some of the captains in the aviation industry to speak. They also do some fundraisers to help support the Aviation Museum and uh, support the Kansas Hall Aviation Hall of Fame. Uh, and uh, it's a place where people involved in aviation is at the business level here predominantly can get together and socialize and talk shop and have lunch and hear somebody interesting talk about the business. So it is, the, the audience is largely people who work in the aviation industry. Oh yeah, largely ninety uh, percent, yeah. uh, and it's an affiliate of the National Aviation Association. So okay. it's kind of, it, it, it's leadership is part of the board that uh, helps manage the NAA. Interesting. Okay. And uh, the funny thing is, it's only a couple of years old. All these years, aviation's been big in town, and we didn't get a uh, Wichita Aero Club until the end of. Uh, 19, uh, 2008, I guess it was, mm-hmm. yeah. when it was formed. And the first meeting was in old, early '09. Good stuff. Okay. Shoutouts. Let's see now. I've got one right away uh, that I just translate. I just converted to a shoutout. Um, so I think it was last episode or the episode before. I was telling about this little grassroots aviation museum I stumbled across in Schenectady, and Jeb um, suggested that it would be really great if somebody put together a collection, a, a website, a database of all of these little independent grassroots uh, museums around the uh, around the country. And uh, and in our show notes, uh, Jeff Ward uh, dutifully described the fact that we were talking about uh, uh, that subject. Uh, he, he writes in the show notes, he says, Jeb asks what other lesser-known aviation museums are out there. And then he and then very subtly, Jeb, Jeff writes, uh, and then Jeff says, why not start at the 30,000 feet website, website's museum listing page? Uh, and it turns out that the 30,000 feet website already has quite a uh, an elaborate list of uh, of museum aviation museums yeah they do um, they do around the uh, around yeah there must the be at least 10 or 15 there yeah no come on it's a good list um, oh, and really? there's also a list of lists too the first uh, first section here is uh, a list of museum lists and and directories so this is definitely a good place to start and uh, um, this maybe is the place that we ought to feed all of uh, our thoughts. There's more than 30 on here. David, are you being a smartass? <laughs> yeah, I'm being a smartass. There's a lot of them in here. This is a big list. Um, it's dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens. Billions and billions. Um, and uh, my, only su- my only suggestion to this list was I wish that it was uh, organized geographically so you could more easily find museums in a particular area. But, uh, but it's a great list and it's... Uh, yeah. uh, you should definitely take a look uh, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, and you should be. And it's an international list, too. Yeah. So uh, yeah. you can find, like, Xerix Australian Commercial Aviation Collection or the Yorkshire Air Museum in the U.K. Mm-hmm. Yep. And in most every case, it includes a link to uh, the uh, museum's uh, website. So yeah, it's good stuff here. You can check this out at uh, 30,000feet.com slash museums.htm. So 30,000 feet is spelled out the words 30,000 feet, no dashes, no dots, no spaces. 
facebook.com slash museums.htm. What's next? David, you got a shout-out, I think, don't you? Yeah, just a real quick one. wanted to say happy 69th birthday to the Civil Air Patrol, Yeah, which was uh, chartered 69 years ago today, according to something I read earlier. Uh, December 1, uh, 1941, which was kind of fortuitous because a week later we were officially at war and yeah. they went to work protecting the coastal, land, coastal uh, areas of the United States and evolved into the Air Force Auxiliary Search and Rescue Operation that it is today. So That really is interesting, that, that coincidence, time-wise. Yeah. Yeah, great program, Jeb. You were a member for a while. I was, and I was just thinking, you know, if it wasn't for CAP, I might not have um, um, uh, the tickets. Some of the tickets I have that these mm-hmm. days, yeah, because uh, it was easy to to get um, access to those airplanes, fly them inexpensively, and uh, practice a lot with them. So um, it's all good. Yeah, cool. Other I, I don't. I don't think I have one. Um, That's okay. You don't uh, have to. Uh, sorry. <laughs> Can, can you find it in your heart to forgive me? Sure, why not? David, anything else? I'm good. Okay. Dave Higdon uh, is an aviation photographer, also an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, where can people find you on the Internet? Oh, avbuyer.com, aea.net, uh, davehigdon.biz, or a random Google search that uh, could veer you off into the land of theoretical physics. And Jeb Burnside is a freelance aviation journalist currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Where can people find you on the net, Jeb? Well, well, I think we've kind of been in that realm of theoretical physics ever since Jack pushed the record button. Yeah, this has been an odd one. There's no question about it. (laughs) Uh, But otherwise, if you really must, uh, you can find me at jeburnside.com. Um, aviation safety magazine.com, uh, aea.net, uh, avweb.com occasionally, and um, or just Google it. Hmm. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. And you can learn more about me at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. Thanks to uh, Jeff Ward for creating our show notes and uh, and uh, in making some really great and interesting suggestions. Thanks. Yes, thank you, Jeff. Yeah. Thanks to Mike Morgan, Roy Searle, and to the many other listeners who have created the UCAP disclaimer clips and other audio pieces that, we, that appear from time to time in the podcast. We're also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. And don't forget, you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation movies list, the new ratings, webpage of fame, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, you want something you wanted to say? If you want to live to be as old as Jack or older, go fly. Because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. And I just had this vision of a new media producer spelled GNU. Well, that's that's enough talking. Let's go flying. He, he's actually Dave is finally actually getting in touch with the eighties. <laughs> AMFFM. Okay, Let's see. Moving now. right along. Yeah, right. 
No, too late for that. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I gave up and opened a beer 15 minutes ago, dude. I mean, it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you don't have a beer open, you're behind the curve. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm really bummed out. I'm still waiting for my, uh, my uh, uh, helicopter, my RC helicopter there, my, my droid, drone, drone, AR drone. Yeah, well, tell, tell, tell us more about that. You, you got that with you? No, I, I'm telling you, FedEx has got it. All right, I. I had to ship it home from Las Vegas because yeah. I couldn't take it with me because I was going home by way of Canada, and I didn't want to take it in and out of Canada. It just seemed like it would be a big ordeal. So I gave yeah. it to FedEx, and, uh, and, they, and, and they didn't even promise. I mean, it's not like they're not delivering it. They, they said they couldn't get it home until uh, Monday of this week, a couple of days ago. And by then, I'd been home and left again. So, uh, so I have, still haven't seen it again yet. I played with it in Las Vegas, and I haven't seen it since then. Well, uh, today, you know, I'm sure I'm that's been, up. Hang on, Jeb, go first. I'm sorry. Today, I've been sitting here at the office all morning, looking out in the front yard, waiting for the UPS truck to drive up with two iPads. Right? Ah, uh, yeah. Okay, so I'm sitting here three o'clock. No, no UPS. I'm like, what the? F-? So I got online and checked the status, and it said delivered. I'm like, what the? F-? Yeah. Walked outside. There's no boxes in my front yard. Went back inside, looked at them more closely. They've dropped them at the gate. The oh. gate's 300 yards from here. They're, so they're sitting out there on the ground by the. They're uh, sitting out there on the ground by the main drag. I'm like, what the? F-? I put at least you put them behind the gate. Yeah. So and uh, everything, but holy. Okay. Well, and I had thought we'd started, but I guess not. Uh, well, no, you can bleep that out. I'll order that out. All right, that's what I'll do. Anyways, my draw, my my drone.